Welcome to Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and senior partner at the Dendros Group. I'm Luz Maria Frias. Um, I am happily enjoying life to its fullest. And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians and associate at Dendros Group. And uh, our other regular uh, uh podcast member Lee couldn't be with us today. She's under the weather. We pray that she gets uh, well soon. Um, and we have a special guest today for our topic, uh, looking at tenants' rights, uh, and that is Representative Esther Agbaje. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here again. So we're excited today to talk about something that monumental that happened. Uh, on January 4th, 2024, there was an immediate press release uh, that uh, Representative uh, Esther Abadje uh, joined Lieutenant uh, Governor Peggy Flanagan, Senator Claire uh, um, Omu uh, Verbetten from, from the DFL and other champions for renters, renters to celebrate Minnesota's historic comprehensive tenant protection laws. Which would take, which took effect January first, twenty twenty four, and so we're going to be talking today about some of the the new tenant protections that were in that historic package uh, with one of the folks who was who, who co-authored it, um, and and uh, we'll dive into some of those those areas. Now, this is a huge deal, especially in my community, and I everybody can still speak for you, but my community, we are very heavily represented in tenant populations in a state where most folks are homeowners, uh, most most of the homeowners in the state are white, there's a whole lot of folks of color who are in rental situations for which these protections have come in. And I know I have experienced landlords who, who um, these we could have used these protections growing up on in many different ways. But uh, uh, I'm going to kick it over to you to just uh, talk about some of the mainstays uh, in this bill, uh, Representative Agbaje, and, and, and then kind of go from there, because I know we've all got questions and wonderings. Yeah, well, thanks so much for that. Um, you know, this is definitely a historic bill. Um, as someone who has practiced a little bit of housing law, when I came to Minnesota, um, or moved back to Minnesota, I should say, um, from here originally, I realized that the laws here weren't very tenant friendly. Um, and then folks were also telling me that they also hadn't been changed, essentially, since Minnesota became a state. Uh, so that was really concerning, but it was great to be working with colleagues who have been working and putting pressure on making changes to these laws. So some of the big things that we were able to do this year uh, or last year was really to ensure that now tenants have a 14-day notice before they are evicted. So if a landlord wants to file an eviction, uh, they can't just go down to the courthouse anymore. Before they used to be able to do that, they could get a court date within seven days, and that would be it. Um, now they do have to submit a 14-day notice to the tenant, and in that notice is also information about how that tenant can receive support, whether it's uh, calling a legal aid hotline or potential avenues for funding, particularly since non-payment of rent is a really big reason why people are evicted. Um, and we just believe that in those two weeks that a person can then figure out, maybe I need to move from this situation. Maybe I need to find an attorney. Maybe there's a way I can get some more money so I can stay here. Um, so that, and it also just gives time for a little bit of cooling off period between both the landlord and the tenant to hopefully work towards a more collaborative solution. Um, in addition, we also updated uh, a little bit about the dynamics of the relationship between landlords and tenants. Um, so one thing I know, or two things I know people are excited about 
the fact that landlords now have to give 24 hours notice uh, before entering a unit and they can only enter between essentially, you know, daytime hours. So 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Um, and what that does is it gives a sense of privacy and dignity to folks. So you don't have your landlord just randomly coming into your unit whenever they feel like it. Additionally, because we know Minnesota is a very cold state, uh, we now have standardized across the board that any landlord has to ensure that their units are at least 68 degrees in the winter months, so from October through April. Um, and that has just been um, something I think a lot of people have been looking for. It's already a best practice with a lot of landlords, but now we're just mandating it across the state. Um, there's a couple of other provisions too, um, some around animals, which I know people really care about their animals. So now if an apartment building allows animals, they can't ask you to declaw or devocalize that animal. Um, and we also expanded some of the emergency provisions that, that tenants can use if they need their landlord to actually do something in their unit. Um, so that's expanded to things like, ref like refrigerators, which it wasn't before. Um, so we can talk more about uh, particular uh, uh, provisions that you see in there um, and happy to tell you a little bit of the background of, of how we got there. Representative Gabaje, um, I, I read through the various provisions. There are 16 provisions. Yes. Um, and so this, this was, as you said, historic because it's the largest sweep, so to speak, of tenant landlord provisions in the history of, of the state in 165 years. In particular, when the uh, providing more um, expansion of that re emergency repair list um, to include non-working refrigerators, but also promised air conditioning, serious infestations of rodents and, and things of that sort. And when a city has a, a notice of an intent to condemn the property, which you know uh, is really important and, and tenants otherwise wouldn't know. Early, early on in my career, when I was uh, a new attorney, I would represent uh, tenants in housing among other areas of law. And there are some just egregious examples uh, that come to mind that, like Anthony said, we could have used back then these protections, uh, one of which is, and I was sharing this before going on air, I represented a family where uh, there was no lock on the front door. Uh, the unit had previously been burglarized and the door frame was gone uh, and the landlord didn't want to replace it. Um, and there was no deadbolt. And so what happened in that situation is uh, the various family members would take rotation staying up all night to make sure that no one was coming in to burglarize their home, but even causing harm, personal harm to any of their family members. Uh, until we got involved and represented the family, then of course that changed immediately. And we were able then um, to get them some remedy financially as well for uh, not only that violation and other uh, housing uh, violations as well. The heat part of it is huge. Uh, the fact that between October 1st and, and April 30th, landlords must maintain a, a minimum temperature of 68 degrees in rental units. I represented clients who didn't have that protection and they had to sleep uh, at night uh, and during the day with their oven on all the time and their oven doors open all the time. And that presented all kind of health hazards but also fire hazards. Uh, children didn't know and they'd go and they touch the oven door and, and cause you know 
very serious burns to their body and their hands. Um, there's a whole host of, of problems uh, that we know would happen in situations like that. And then the last one I'll, I'll, I'll um, mention before I know the rest of the crew has some comments or questions about the 14-day notice, um, written notice, in terms of before filing for eviction for non-payment or rent. Before this protection, landlords could, could actually file an eviction a day after rent was due and give no notice to the tenants. So imagine that, right? So your rent is due on the, you know, on the 31st and you're a day late and the landlord runs to the courthouse literally uh, and files for an eviction without even telling you, you right. know, and, and we don't know why that person is late. We don't know if, you know, they're having some other financial pressures. We don't know if that person is sick. We don't, you know, there's, there's a whole host of reasons, like you said, uh, so there's that cooling off period that really is intended to protect uh, the tenant going forward. So uh, kudos to you and your colleagues for taking this incredible under, you know, undertaking, uh, much needed, uh, long overdue, um, and that you were a co-sponsor on this. Uh, we really appreciate your leadership and commitment to our, our most vulnerable um, families and and individuals in our state. So thank you for that. Of course, yeah, happy to, happy to be a part of it. One of the questions and wonderings I had to, um, to something you said as you were uh, introducing yourself earlier, um, many of these uh, provisions, at least that are, that are, that are in here, are codifying, really codifying what has been understood as best practices, right? Every time there's there's something like this involved, you always hear some smattering of, oh, they're putting extra stuff in here. And I'm like, no, nah, this is the, like, when when you think about who are good tenants and, and how we avoid slum landlords or, or landlords that you, when we pass along the informal network of, this is what a good landlord looks like. Like, this is the this is the best practice. Can you talk a little bit about that codifying of things that are just known to be the best practices? Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of where a lot of these provisions come from, right? Because similar to the stories that Luz was telling, we heard from tenants who talked about how their landlords would walk in and their units while they were in the shower or how they would never get a response, even though they had no hot water. So these were things that we knew that, you know, unscrupulous landlords were doing. But anyone who's been a renter for a long time, like myself, you kind of can figure out like who are the better landlords to rent from because they're usually pretty upfront about their practices. And these are the types of practices that they're doing. Um, so they're trying to work with people because they know that it's harder to move people out and then move people in. Um, they want long-term tenants actually. Um, and even some of the smaller like mom and pop landlords, you know, they, they know the importance of having a communicative and collaborative relationship with their tenants. So what these laws do is really not to put a burden on those who are already doing the right thing, because if they are, there's not really much that they have to change. But for those who are not doing the right thing, you know, the state is coming down to say, hey, we're looking at you, we're going to make sure that you shape up. And if you don't, you know, at that press conference, the attorney general's office was there and they talked about how they are, you know, going after some of these larger landlords who are not following the rules. And so we're really grateful to have the AG's office support in, in these efforts um, to ensure that um, housing is much more dignified for so many more Minnesotans. You know, one of the, 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 
protections that are in here that I think is is something that we don't necessarily think about is what happens when you're in a in a space and there's something that goes wrong and what what can you petition for for emergency repair and how long it takes I know I have lived in 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 apartments where when I call the landlord because something isn't working whether it's the um running water whether it's it's toilet or heat or or any of those other other items I've lived in places where the response to that is quick. There's a maintenance person right there. They come in and they take a look at it. It may take an issue. Sometimes things break and it may take some time. Maybe the repair person has to be like, you know what? I just don't have this particular part and the store's closed and it's 11 o'clock at night. But first thing in the morning, they're there to, to do whatever, you know, there's that energy. But this finally spells out like, these are the things that need to be covered in that. Because I have had landlords who are like, yo, it's not my problem that you broke that thing or that it's not my problem that things there or has told me, yo, stuff happens and it's three days before somebody shows up. Like there's, we have experienced that before. And this kind of lays that out. It, I know it identifies finally the types of incidents that must be recovered. Is there anything that talks about the time frame? Yeah. So the time frame is really based on kind of like what the emergency is, right? So, you know, tenants do have to inform their landlord of the situation, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, and then if it does end up being that they have to go to court, the court actually can remedy and basically let the t tenant and landlord know that if the repairs are emergency at an emergency level enough, the repairs have to begin immediately. So that's really helpful. Um, similarly, you know, a lot of landlords are like, well, what if people just call us for every little thing, or if it's something that they actually broke themselves, you can usually tell when someone damaged uh, a unit. So like, if that's the case, obviously that would be the responsibility of the tenant, but in cases where it's just something that breaks down, it's really putting the onus back on the landlords that you have to provide a safe and habitable place to live. Um, and yes, this is going to force you to communicate with your tenant about how long the repair is going to take. They now have the opportunity to go to court if it's taking too long to show that they've done their due diligence, to contact you, to let you know about the situation. And hopefully the courts can step in and say, you know, you have to do the right thing here. Um, so, you know, that I think that piece is really exciting. It really helps. To me, I like those because I think it really helps put the tenant in the driver's seat a little bit. They don't have to continue to weight. I think that's, you know, something, a larger goal that I have in the tenant landlord area is can tenants start to do more affirmative cases, right? Right now, the only way they can really do an affirmative case is through what's called rent escrow, which is going to the court, withholding your rent because of uh, the various uh, deficiencies in your unit. Um, but there isn't something that if, if a landlord, you know, breaks something in the lease that they can go and affirmatively go after the landlord, whereas in many states, even in Minnesota, the landlord can look at the lease, see any type of violation you've done and immediately take you to court. Um, so that's, you know, I think these emergency provisions kind of help push us in that space where both parties in this contract are getting to be on more equal footing. So I, well, I just wanted to comment because it's, you know, Start, we started out as renters. And when I say we, I mean my family when I was very young. And then and then I started as a renter, you know, when you after you graduate from high school and go off to college and whatever. And but I've been a homeowner long uh, a long time. So 
you know, many of these provisions, when I, when I um, reviewed them and looked at them, it, it's good to hear that you said these are best practices, because when I think back on my own renting history, I, I must have been fortunate enough where I was in places where if something did happen, there was a response, and, and, and not a negative one. And, um, but I'm, I'm a homeowner and I own a dog. And so I was absolutely flabbergasted that one of the provisions was that, um, if the rental unit allowed you to have a pet, which I think is fantastic, but they couldn't, you had to put language in there that didn't allow them to ask you to have your animal decloud or what was the other word? Devocalized. or something? Devocalized. Devocalized? What do you <laughs> yeah. mean devocalized? I don't, so <laughs> I'm the, not what a- What does that even mean? I'm not a pet owner, so I didn't even know that this is like a procedure you can get done, but I guess you can have, particularly if you have dogs, maybe you can do something to their vocal cords so they don't bark as loud. I think that's crazy. Um, yeah, I think if you're going to be a property manager or a landlord that allows pets, you need to allow the people to have their pets, um, especially if you're also asking for a deposit on the pets. So, yeah. And, and but I, I'm but I'm just saying it was a thing, though. There I were... think yeah, it was a thing. Yeah, I mean the thing is that's the thing. Incredible. It's like all of these all of these provisions were because we had stories of this happening to folks, right? And, you know, a lot of landlords have come back and said, like, well, these were very rare incidents, but they shouldn't be happening at all. And those provisions were actually in the lease that the landlord would require the tenant to get these procedures done. Right. It wasn't a suggestion. It was actually part of their contract that if they were to have these pets in their units, that they had to agree to either declaw them or devocalize yeah. them. Wow. Yeah. And Incredible. and yeah. that gets in. I mean, that gets into some 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 difficult areas. I've been in. I've lived in in rental uh, property spaces where they do allow pets, and somebody's dog is barking all the time. But there's a there's mechanisms to deal with that that are outside of the of of the leasing agreement. So the 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 idea that I'm going to kind of craft this space, and that's that's one of the things I think is has come up in conversation around this is we've we've got um, rental properties and we've got new kind of <clears throat> uh, living spaces that are trying to like curate a particular lifestyle and way of being. And, and it looks good. It looks, you know, modern and all those types of things. But some of sometimes that it's creeped into these spaces where you get these things that are in the lease that are in protection of that kind of quote unquote curated um, um, space that, that, folks could just do willy-nilly because there wasn't any provision that prevented you from being able to kind of intrude in folks' lives. One of the things that I think goes along with that is the next provision on the list, and that is the non-optional fees yeah. that need to be disclosed. How many times, you know how many times I've gotten into a space where somebody's like, this is what everything's supposed to cost. This is what the rent's going to be. Oh, but then there's this fee, then this thing, then this thing. And now all of a sudden I'm like, wait, so rent is actually $200 more than I thought? Like, that's not going to work. But now I've yeah. already... You know, that, that that wasn't disclosed when I signed the lease, but then I'm obligated to it afterwards. It's a problem. Yeah. And that I think that was actually becoming a pretty big problem for folks. And so we were hearing stories of people who had, you know, saved, especially people who are trying to move into better rental units. Right. So they had saved up. They're ready to live in this place. They think they can afford it. They're telling them, hey, rent is fifteen hundred dollars a month. They're like, all right, good. I got that. 
And like you said, they come, they sign the paperwork. It's like, here's your move-in fee. Here's this fee. Here's that fee. And they didn't know about it. And now they're facing like seventeen fifty, because um, some of them might even be recurring fees. Exactly. So, um, so we made sure that, you know, that lot landlords and property managers are being more upfront about the total cost of the unit. So that way people can make that decision um, about what was best for their finances. So it's still a free enterprise. <laughs> I mean, we're not saying you, you have to give someone an apartment, but um, they need to be able to make a fully informed choice before entering into that agreement. You know, another provision that really um, struck me is before this legislation, there was no clear right to terminate a lease due to medical yeah. issues. And this law, the set of laws now, right, this provision in particular, in limited circumstances, uh, the law allows a tenant to end their lease early to move into a medical facility within two months notice. Can you talk about some of the examples and testimony you heard? I mean, the immediate example for me was COVID, someone being incapacitated, you know, due to COVID. But tell us uh, some more about maybe some of the the testimony that you heard as a result of um, this problem. Yeah, a lot of it actually stemmed from folks who were dealing with re like rehab, whether it was because of substance abuse or mental health issues, or even just like physical health issues, right? If they had gotten to some type of accident and needed extra time in a rehab facility to do, you know, physical therapy, occupational therapy, that type of stuff. And sometimes, as we know, that can take months. Um, and it mean, and sometimes it also means you probably can't go back necessarily to the same living arrangements that you had. Um, so we wanted to be able to allow people who had a legitimate reason, and usually that meant a note from a healthcare facility or a healthcare provider, um, to be able to exit their lease by paying two months. So there is still a penalty, but it's not, you know, because we don't have a duty to mitigate in Minnesota. So in Minnesota, what happens is if you want to end your lease early, they usually they can force you to pay out the, the remainder of the lease. And so here we were just saying if they have a legitimate reason, um, particularly if they're in the hospital or are going to go into some type of rehabilitative facility, um, that they can pay the two months rent and then be free of that lease. And so I think that that's going to help a lot of folks. We know that accidents can happen. We know that very difficult situations um, and we just want to be. Uh, cognizant of that fact and know that we're dealing with real people here um, and allow them to be able to not feel that they now have this extra financial burden on top of whatever personal issue they're dealing with. Yet a, an, another provision that, that struck me was the right to have a move-in inspection and a move-out inspection because prior to this uh, set of laws, there was no right to have either of them, Right to have either a move-in inspection or move-out when I was representing uh, tenants back in the day. And of course, you know, we didn't have uh, the proliferation of, of cell phones to take pictures. Um, but constantly, landlords would fabricate some story about, uh, no, this, this didn't exist, right? Or even today, you know, I've got um, a daughter who is a tenant uh, in California, and she's she has run across a number of these types of situations where we always tell her, take a picture of the place before you go in, Every everything nook and cranny, every appliance, open up all the, the you know, the refrigerator, take out the, the drawer, the, the 
the little bins to see if there are holes in the refrigerator. I mean, all of it, right? Because we know that uh, there are some unscrupulous um, landlords who are looking for a reason to keep the damage deposit. And that's a huge amount of money for tenants to lose either a part of that damage deposit or all of that damage deposit. And that ties their hands in being able to go rent another unit because every landlord pretty much requires that uh, deposit uh, as right. well. Can you speak some more about about some of the uh, the provisions there that you you yeah so that of? actually came from our university students really um, it was something that they had been advocating for for years because primarily on student housing they were seeing a lot of discrepancies between landlords and students about the shape of the unit when they moved in versus when they moved out um, and so some of them weren't giving inspections or if they were you know there was different information so what they wanted was to be able to have Landlord does the inspection at the beginning. So they're seeing what the student is seeing. Everybody's seeing the same thing. Everybody's writing it down. And then at the end, everybody comes in again. Everyone's looking at the same thing. Everyone's writing it down. And then, you know, and then there can be a real accounting of if there's any discrepancies or if there's actual damage, then we can account for that. But now, um, but before I think what was happening is, you know, people were getting letters or notices that you had XYZ damage and they were like, I never did anything to the place. Um, so this was really something that was brought forward by uh, university students, um, primarily in the Twin Cities area, but also they had advocates across the state. And I think it's also useful for, you know, um, non-student tenants as well, because as you said, like we know that there are some landlords who are always out to find ways to get the security deposit back um, without actually having a real reason for it. So, and again, going back to what Don said, these are best practices, most regular good landlords are already doing this. I want to just highlight what you said about writing things down, right? Because that's the other part of it that I hope our, our listeners are tuning into is that it should be written down and there should be a mutual understanding by both the landlord or the representative, whoever that management person is and themselves as a tenant that those are the provisions and, you know, this whole thing, well, yeah, we talked about it and and it's going to be okay. You know, and that's another kind of fly by night thing, right? The, the landlord would say, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. You know, you trust me. I trust you. Well, that's not going to hold up in the court of law when you're trying to get your $1,500 damage deposit back a year later, two years later, or, or whatever that time period right. might be. So, just highlighting what you said, I, I think it's really important for folks to have that level of detail to protect themselves going forward as well. Yep. One of the other things that I think is is huge, especially as it retained as it pertains to to rental units um, in general, is of course the temperature. So I've you know been in lots of apartments where it's been cold or drafty or there's insulation things stuff stuff like that. Um, this this the provision here says a landlord must provide heat in a residency uh, in a residential tenancy of at least 68 degrees when it is less than 60 degrees outside from October 1st to April 30th. And I think this is a huge thing because, you know, we, we a lot of my encounters with landlords where um, we've had issues or at odds is when the landlord is trying to save money. Um, to maximize whatever, you know, profits may be gotten, if any are gotten or or to meet, you know, what their expenses are for it. And one of the ways 
constant complaints that we've gotten from some landlords growing, especially when I was growing up, is y'all have the heat too high. <laughs> and so in in and this is in a space where heat was included, right? So now if I can if I can move that down, I've also experienced um uh landlords using the heat to make the situation uncomfortable and these little things to get us to leave because they want to do something different or they want to you know, they want us up out of there or some cases they don't, you know, they don't like you. So there's ways to mess with you to get you out. Um, now, I've experienced this in other states as well, but 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 in Minnesota in particular, I've also experienced it. Um, it how did you how did what was the conversation that arrived at these particular temperatures in that particular time frame? So there were already a couple other cities that had um, heat, heat gotcha. ordinances in their towns. So that was pretty much what we based it off of. And this this is kind of the numbers that they were using. And I think they're kind of standardized numbers a little bit around cold weather states around the country. Um, but, I, you know, I think part of the reason why we added that provision of like 60 degrees less outside is because we know that like when the seasons change, sometimes the air feels cooler or warmer than it is. So we wanted to kind of give that little bit of leeway for folks uh, before they had to turn the heat on. Um, but also keeping a minimum of 68 degrees, right? Like that's just kind of like a good baseline level, you know, room temperature, you know, colloquially known as about 72 degrees. So we're still giving people a four degree range to work with. Um, but they're welcome to go higher than that. It's just what the minimum Got needs it. to be. Because what we were hearing, similar to the stories you were telling, is like, you know, folks didn't have heat and they were using space heaters and they... Uh, you know, we're in places that were below 68 degrees. And so they're freezing at night. Um, their children are freezing. So those are the types of stories that we were hearing about the necessity for heat. And, you know, I think I saw, I even saw like one person had a story that they were in a, in a unit that the landlord hadn't updated the heat in years. I mean, imagine, you know, having to live in a place like that because, you know, they didn't want to pay for, you know, a new boiler, a new heater or whatever. Um, so, you know, this is one of the provisions that we got a lot of pushback on, unfortunately, because, you know, again, costs, uh, you know, people didn't want to have to pay like high heating bills. But I think the point of it is really not so much, especially if you have a building or a unit where uh, there's a centralized mm -hmm. heating, it's really working to make sure that kind of centralized heating if each unit can't control their own heat um, is just essentially providing a baseline level. Um, and so we just wanted to be really clear about that. So that way, I think it was like three or well, no, more than that. But, you know, the like uh, myriad of cities that had their own heat ordinances, we just wanted to be sure that if you were going to become a landlord in the state of Minnesota, this is something that you had to take into consideration. So I've been out of the market for so long that, <laughs> you know, when I when I listen to these provisions, I guess I really never thought about them. And then having to think back on these particular um, instances, because I'm of the ilk where, where um, you know, I know we're talking about these particular issues that tenants face with, with not all landlords, because not all landlords kind of fall in a category, but we know often from the communities we came from, there were plenty, right? I mean, and, and so, you know, I grew up in North Minneapolis and I would hear stories all the time um, with unscrupulous mm -hmm. landlords. Um, so my, but, but, you know, the thing that the, my mind is trying to rummage through all these provisions and changes that will, that are benefiting tenants. 
because you know my son and his fiance you know year a few years ago um relocated back up here after they left college and um and I was absolutely blown away that they found a suitable apartment for themselves along light mm. rail that was $1500 a month now this was probably wow. this was probably you know 8 years ago but $1500 a month for this uh apartment the 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 price for that apartment blew me away because that was more than what my wife and I pay for our mortgage for our home mm. and so yeah. i couldn't believe that the the uh market can hit that high for these young folks to rent the place and then you throw on you know so not only are you dealing you know and then with the issues of coming up with deposit that first usually cuz when you move in it's that deposit that first month's rent which doubles so now you're talking $3000 and you know and and I didn't know that they that landlords were acting like uh, airline companies and hitting you with additional fees that you had no idea or even rental cars um I like the idea that you know you you can now at least go in and inspect it cuz we do that every time we rent a car you can't drive off that lot till you walk around that car and expect a lot. And I'm right there with them because I'm not coming back and have them find some scratch or something on a rental car that I, you know what I'm saying? Right. Right, right, Unless you right. get so, the insurance, the, the, the all-inclusive insurance, and then you ain't got to worry about it. Exactly. <laughs> Which is a ripoff, rip too, but... Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, that's true. And we still haven't even talked about renter's insurance yet, so we got to get to that hey. in the future. But I'm just saying, but the price, the price that families... And particularly, we know low-income families are having to to deal with in order to rent in the first place are totally different than what it was for my experience. Because when I moved out of the house and I moved into my first apartment, I was paying $150 a month furnished, right? Whoa. Yes. I mean, think about that, right? $150 a month. We're t- and so now... I can't that's, even that's, think of what these rents. It's a few are. moons ago. <laughs> a few. <laughs> uh, yeah, just a, just a, just a little bit ago. Yeah, you know the hard part is, is, or the thing is that that is the situation. Times have changed. Um, you know, we're really hoping that in addition to the landlord tenant stuff, that a lot of the funding that we pass for housing can really help to start to bring the bring down those costs. Whether it's directly to tenants who are having a hard time paying their rent and. You know, we increase some rental assistance funding. So, but again, we're hearing from folks that 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 funding goes like immediately quickly because there's so many people who are in need, um, as well as like working on ways to continue to find ways to build more housing, um, also to upgrade uh, current housing so that can be turned around for folks, um, and finding ways to uh, ensure that those people who want to become homeowners have the ability and the assistance to do so. So those are so in addition to a lot of these tenant laws. We also were doing things in other spaces to make sure people could have much more affordable homes. Um, we are hopeful that, you know, over time we'll start to see some decreases in the in the housing market. But, you know, it's been one of those things uh, around the country that we've just seen that people are just taking advantage of commodifying housing and just trading it back and forth without real concern for people who actually live in these units. So. Um, but the one other piece, you guys are probably going to get to this, but I want to make sure we hit it, is uh, 
one of the pieces that's been a long time coming in Minnesota has been the expungement factor for mm-hmm. addictions. Mm-hmm. So I was going to mention that. Yep. Yeah. So now, before in Minnesota, an expunge or an eviction record. Well, actually, it still happens. We haven't fixed that part yet. But uh, an eviction record goes on your record immediately as soon as the landlord files. So how we were talking about earlier that a landlord could go file and you could probably be kicked out within seven to 14 days. That even if you won your case or you resolved it or you settled it in some way, that stays on your record. So when you try to move to another place, they're like, oh, you were evicted. And you can be like, I was never evicted. What are you talking about? But because they went and just did the simple act of filing, that stays on um, your record. And it was being pulled up by people who do these background checks and all that type of stuff. Um, So we actually did have a provision in there for that to make them non-public records. But unfortunately, the court, Minnesota Supreme Court came back at us and said that was not a rule they wanted to implement. So we're going back to the drawing board. So we'll be working on that again. Um, But the one thing that still that did go through is that now expungements do have to come off your record within three years. So regardless whether you if you were evicted or not evicted or whatever, they have to come off your record within three years. If but if you win your case, if your case is dismissed, if you settle whatever the uh, discrepancies are or some other reason that the tenant is the person who wins that case, then that expungement has to come off or that eviction has to come off immediately. So the expungement becomes immediate in that situation. And I think that's just going to help so many more Minnesotans who, you know, in some cases don't even realize they have something on their record. And for those who did have stuff on their records because maybe they got under hard times or whatever, it's going to fall away after a certain period and they'll be able to start over again. And that's what we want to give people in Minnesota, an opportunity for second chances, um, particularly when it comes to housing, because we know that housing is the basis and the foundation for ensuring that your kids do well in school, you um, can maintain your health, both your physical and mental health, um, and that you can maintain your job. Uh, a lot of financial stability is related to housing stability. So that is a provision that a lot of folks <laughs> have been working on for years. And so we were very happy that we could get that across the finish line uh, this past session. And we are looking at more ways to ensure that uh, more Minnesotans have the opportunity to continue to build the type of life that they want to live. And that's retroactive, right? So I can go back and and clear up if that's been the case before and it's been beyond that three years, or is this something that's moving forward? So it's supposed it's supposed okay. to be. <laughs> and this is where Luz will know what I'm talking about with the way laws are interpreted. Our intention is that it would be a full look back in that after that the courts would need to go through and anything that was older than three years would need to fall away, as well as anything moving forward would need to fall away. Uh, we're hearing that there's some discrepancies in the ways that judges are approaching that. So I think that's also something we'll want to take a look at and have a discussion with the courts. Um, but our intention was that it should be looking at everything holistically. So, uh, but yeah, that's the point. Three years and your eviction goes away. I mean, just imagine someone who is a student, you know, it's age 20, they get evicted. And prior to this change, that eviction was on your record permanently. So fast forward, you're now 38 years old, you're a renter, and that's still on your record. You know, it's this uh, scarlet letter, right? And I I think in the practicality of it, um, it would behoove the judges to interpret this uh, 
in in the best light possible for the tenants because I, you can imagine the court backlog to get into court to then expunge a record that is 18 years old because you know in the example I just uh, shared with you because the the judge is being you know too strict on on their interpretation of the provision and not in the benefit uh, for the client or for the tenant rather. I mean, it would be ridiculous. You know, it, it's not the best use of the court's time or resources and our courts are, are clogged up as it is on their own. Um, before we, we end though, I, there are two other provisions in it that I think are, are really uh, worthy of mentioning. Um, cannabis, you know, we know August 1st, uh, cannabis became uh, legal um, across the state. There, there are still some uh, additional provisions that have to come into play and, and so forth. But there is uh, a provision that says that a landlord cannot prohibit tenants from possessing cannabis in their home, but the landlords can still prohibit smoking and vaping. So I don't know if you want to unpack that a little bit more along those lines, but I, I think as our population continues to uh, step into this space, folks should know what their rights are, right? And and not have someone get evicted uh, because they have cannabis in their home. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the basic where the law ended up. We had a lot of negotiations and discussions about that provision. Um, so we did sort of end up at a space where you could have cannabis, you could possess cannabis, um, but because so many leases already had smoke-free uh, provisions in their leases, and we know that that came from the, the work of the public health advocates around tobacco control, um, wanting to make sure that landlords could still have that same uh, autonomy over uh, the type of environment they wanted to create in their, in their housing around smoke. Um, and because, you know, there are still studies on kind of like the effects of secondhand cannabis smoke and all that type of stuff. So, you know, as that data continues to become more, more available, more relevant, I think those laws will start to change a little bit. But right now, the compromise was like no smoking, no vaping. But if you have edibles or if uh, the, you know, th that's something that you can have. Um, so people are still working on it. There's still going to be ongoing conversations. But yeah, but like you said, the real point is really to make sure that people aren't evicted for possessing cannabis because, of, you know, cannabis is now legal in Minnesota. So if you have it on you, that should not be a reason to evict you. And the last provision. Nope, oh, nope. go ahead, Anthony. Go ahead. Go ahead. I think you're getting your head at where I'm getting. The last <laughs> the last provision is the credit, uh, renter's credit. So we know renter's credit is really yes. important. You know, as soon as January 1st comes along, many of us are thinking, okay, tax yep. season, right? Yep. Uh, April 15th, right? Uh, so the, the renter's credit historically um, hasn't been something that a lot of people tap into, right? And And it's so important, particularly for folks who are struggling financially. I mean, we're still, uh, the feds are still talking about inflation, yes or no, you know, and they're up and down, but we know that, you know, across the board, uh, rent has gone up. And so renter's credit is a small step 
to help folks with that financial burden. So there's an automatic one-time increase in the credit uh, that was paid in, in uh, 2022, right? Um, it says here, it says this year's taxes. Um, so I don't know if that's yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. I'm on the taxes yeah. committee and because of all my other committees deal so directly with people, I I often am remiss to mention the tax provisions that are also very helpful. So thank you. I appreciate that. Um, for it. So what we did is because we wanted to have more uh, parity and equality between homeowners and renters. So a lot of homeowners, you know, you guys, you guys are eligible for various uh, tax credits, rebates, all types of things like that. Renters are oftentimes helping these landlords pay for their property taxes and all of that. And we don't see any of that return. We don't get to build any equity. Uh, you know, that's why you get people yelling at renters saying, oh, you guys should go buy a house. We can talk about that. But, <laughs> um, but so what we did is we updated the renter's credit that we have here in Minnesota. The biggest change is the fact that it is part of your income tax return. And so it's something that you can just kind of check the box off now. Um, in your income tax return. Whereas before you had to wait till this form came out in August and then like resent it into Minnesota Department of Revenue and then get your credit back. So in addition to increasing the amount uh, renters can get back, uh, we also made it very easy. So it's just part of your income tax return like other uh, similar credits and rebates. Um, the next thing we're hoping to do, at least is my, my vision, is increasing the uh, income levels for renters. Um, because right now I think it taps out around 68000 or so dollars uh, annual salary. But we wanted to increase that at least up to, we've been talking about different numbers, but I think we were looking around $90,000. Um, just because as much as, you know, many of our renters are low income, we also know that a lot of people are kind of stuck in this renting limbo because housing prices are too high. So they might make enough money potentially to buy a house, but they can't afford the down payment. So they're sort of kind of stuck renting, even if they may want to buy, which means they probably are making a little bit of a higher salary, but we want them to be able to partake in kind of uh, those uh, tax credits as well, too. So, hope you know, watch out for that. We, we haven't done it yet, but that's something that might be coming in the future. So, so you've got these in place, and I know that once new provisions like this come into pl in, in, into play, there's there's education that needs to happen. Folks need to understand they've got their rights and things like that. So, what are some of the ways that that um, what are some of the and I'm I'm saying it's just in a general sense for everybody here, right? There's different ways that folks figure this out. Nine times, you know, one of the the, the main ways is when folks encounter them. They go, oh, I didn't know we could do that, or or there's a violation in which, in which case, all of a sudden you find out that you've got these rights, right? Um, what are some of the ways right. in which that everybody here can think about recommending? Like, for example, let me go first. I just asked you a question. I'm not willing to answer. So one thing that I know that I'm going <laughs> to do is to go in there and put in my announcements at the church pretty quickly and 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 pass it around to all the AME pastors at least, right? To say, hey, yo. This is in there. Every single time I we we come on the counter stories and I get these nuggets, I go and I put them in my announcements, right? So there's one one aspect in there. And I know there's organizations who are going to be spreading this out as well. But what are some of the ways in which you one recommend uh representative uh but also two uh for everybody else on the call, like what are the ways in which you're going to go spread this to the world? And I'm just curious for all my counter stories peeps on here. What are the ways you going to go spread this to the world? 
Uh, well, I'll just start. Um, so, you know, we've been working with different tenants' rights organizations. A lot of them have, they've been super excited about these laws. So they have been already doing workshops, trainings, uh, webinars, all sorts of series. They've posted links on their web pages about stuff. So, you know, I, I highly uh, recommend people go to Homeline. Homeline has been a strong advocate in this space. Their website is amazing. They have a lot of really great resources. The uh, Attorney General's Office should have already also updated their website too with some of these new provisions. Um, and they're also willing to help folks. Um, and similarly, Legal Aid will also have uh, updates, especially if you're running into situations. Um, you know, beyond that, it's really just kind of continuing to, you know, be on shows like this, uh, talk with community groups. I was just with my neighbors um, in the Mill City District the other day, telling them about these provisions um, and kind of, you know, we're doing our best to spread the word through our own individual, you know, uh, newsletters and uh, social media posts and things like that. Um, but yeah, but we're trying to, you know, working through our advocates to really get that word out, particularly in a lot of communities who, who, you know, don't follow us and frankly, probably don't have the time to follow us. So. For the uh, non-English speaking communities, I think that's always uh, harder, right? Because of the language barrier, but also cultural barriers that accompany that as well. So Representative Akbaji, you mentioned Homeline and, and their uh, website is homelinemn.org. They do have the fact sheet uh, with all of the, these laws and provisions, and they do have it in various languages. So they do have it in Spanish, Hmong, uh, and I think uh, Anrek. Um, and for me, I know um, I, I am gonna be sharing this with a number of uh, Latino uh, leaders in my community who are really at the grassroots level, right? These are folks who are in community, uh, in various advocacy roles and very various organizing roles. And I think uh, that's where we need to meet. We need to meet folks where they're at. Uh, Anthony, I love your idea and uh, suggestion about the church because so many of our folks uh, they, you know, it's a it's a safe space, but it's also a trusted space, and and that carries a lot of credibility for folks as well. Uh, so I I commit to doing that as well. Turn it over to Don. <laughs> wow, I mean, um, you know, just talking about it here on Connor Stories, I'm a home I'm a homeowner, so I hope folks are tuned into this because you know, um, as a just as a concerned resident member of the uh, indigenous community it's it yeah i'm still i'm still dealing with the the um the issue of these uh encampments or the the camps with the homeless individuals that the city of minneapolis struggles with uh because of the lack of housing you know hopefully these kind of changes will will make it easier for individuals to get into some type of of housing and not have to move from camp to camp um and, you know, but before we close, I'm, I'm hoping, you know, someday to have a, a, another discussion with Representative um, Abaje, but not so much between tenant and landlord, but as a homeowner between homeowners and landlords. And, and there are issues there that, because that, um, I live next to a rental unit 
And I, I, I think uh-huh. it's great. I think, and they rent I, to young folks, I think, who go attend some of the colleges around here, and that's fantastic. Uh, but the, those issues differ between homeowners and landlords with properties in basically, you know, kind of areas that are all um, homeowners in terms of the upkeep mm-hmm. of those properties. And that's a different whole yeah. type of issue that doesn't involve, you know oh, what I yeah. mean? It doesn't involve the tenants <laughs> yeah. because there's no real, I don't, I don't believe there's any requirement for tenants to upkeep that the yard or all that other kind of, that's the landlord responsibilities. Oh, we can talk about that. We have some provisions that, that are coming Uh-oh. through. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think all of these have been really good, um, re- really good things to not only get out to community for to know, but to know that there's now something that I can go back and rely on because having been a renter that felt mm-hmm. at the mercy of landlords, um, uh, uh, especially when, you know, you, you, that, that power space, right? Because you, you know, you don't, you don't, that's, that's not your space. I mean, as much as you make that your home, you pay your money for it, you rent it. There's still something at the back of the mind that says that, that, that that's not quite mine. And somebody else now has the power, has power over your space to live having, you know, some, some agreed upon things in statute that says I can count on these, these things I think is, is really important. And again, to your point that you said very right at the beginning for all the haters who just have everything to say about anything being put in the statute that, you know, these are things that are codifying the best practices that are out there anyway. And so, you know, I think that's, mm-hmm. I think that's a really, really huge deal. Um, as we move, as we move forward and as we, as we, as we close, I'm wondering if, you know, you get, you gave mention to some things that are on there, you know, I'm thinking as a homeowner now having this in front of me, if we ever move or turn our property into a rental property, I know some basic things that need to be on the mind as we prepare the the property to do so. But are there things that, that, uh, what were the things that didn't get included? You mentioned one, I know, but just as we close, what are, what are some of the things that you wish could have made it through that also could be interesting in case we want to rally around some of those in the future? Yeah. I mean, the biggest one that didn't make it through, which a lot of us were very disappointed about, um, is, uh, non-discrimination based on your source of income. Mm. So this is really helpful for section eight holders. Um, you know, in Minnesota, we wanted to input into statute that you could not discriminate against someone because they held a Section 8 voucher. Um, we want we want anyone to be able to, if there's an apartment that they can afford, and if they are using uh, subsidies from the government, they should be able to be able to rent that apartment if they qualify for it, right? Like the fact that your money is coming from the government doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a place to live. Uh, the lieutenant governor tells a really good story about her family and how you know, they came up on Section 8, and now she's a homeowner. So this is definitely a beneficial program from the federal government. We are also now, yeah, right? We're also now um, starting our own pilot program at the state to provide state vouchers for folks. um, So that way they can afford their rent. Um, So we don't want people to be discriminated against because they're getting money from a from a public entity. Um, So that's something that we're coming back to work on. We, We really care deeply about that. Um, yeah, we could talk a lot yeah, about that for a- counter stories, yo. These proxies <laughs> that people use to try to weed out, like, like, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, have me back with a couple <laughs> other folks. We could talk about it. So, um, so that's something that I know will be coming around. And then we're also just going to continue looking at, you know, what other states have been doing to ensure that their the relationship between landlords and tenants is a lot more equal and fair. 
Um, so, you know, I have a provision coming up around just cause eviction, meaning that, you know, there have to be like real legitimate reasons that landlords can use to actually evict someone. And all this does is it just kind of gives a framework so everyone understands what the rules are. Um, and you know we're all and we're also looking at, at a variety of other provisions to just kind of make the renting process um, a lot less scary. I think for for individuals, particularly people who uh, have a hard time dealing with authority figures, because I think sometimes landlords, especially the ones who aren't doing a great job, can kind of come off as really intimidating, as if they have all the power. So. Well, thank you so. Yeah, and they do have part. the power. They, well, they do. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> That's, I mean, sharing that story just reminded me that I'm a Section 8, you know, I, we came from Section 8. So, yeah. I mean, just to hear, you know, hear you relate that story from Lieutenant uh, Peggy Flanagan is, um, was uh, telling because it triggered me that, that uh, after yeah. we left the projects in North Minneapolis and we were able, we eventually were able to end up in a home in the neighborhood through Section 8. And it made mm -hmm. that possible. So, wow, I haven't well, thought about this that is, in years. This is this <laughs> has been great, especially since the, many of the folks in the communities that I serve um, are are represented as 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 renters. I mean, we know the data in uh, for for many of our communities in the state of Minnesota, and so having something like this to be able to um, uh, put forward is going to be great. Thank you so much for being here to talk to talk with us and to help illuminate and to highlight this. We got to have you back again because you just you, you give it to us real clear and plain and like and, and, and real. <laughs> and I love it. And, and, and we always appreciate being able to do that, especially over the things that really affect the lives of our various communities. Uh, if you've been listening, there's yeah. a couple of places, uh, um, uh, resources that have been uh, uh, mentioned here to get this information. Of course, you can go um, and and look look this up <clears throat> um, on on websites that talk about the legislation. Um, there's a couple of uh, organizations that you also mentioned as well. I just want to reiterate those before we go. Yeah, definitely reach out to Homeline. I think Lou said the website is uh, homeline or homelinemn.org. Uh, they're super helpful when it comes to tenants. Legal aid is also helpful if you find yourself needing some legal support or legal advice. Uh, also, the Volunteer Lawyers Network is good for that as well. Um, and I think any tenants' rights advocacy groups uh, in, in Calidos, Unidos is also very helpful in that space too. Well, thank you so much for being here um, and talking about tenants' rights with us today. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota and partner at the Dendros Group. I'm Luz Maria Frias, uh, happily spending life in a very relaxed uh, manner and enjoying life to its fullest. And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians and associate of Dendrils Group. And our guest today. State Representative Esther Agbaje. Thanks so much and keep uh, fighting for justice, everyone. This is Counter Stories. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.